Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out all my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, restore to me the joy of salvation, sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, sinners will be converted to you. Holy Father, we thank you for your word this morning, the instrument the Holy Spirit used to bring us to genuine faith. For you said faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And we thank you for that. And thank you for the bread of life, the living word, but also the written word that like newborn babes, you've commanded us to long for it, that we might grow in respect to our salvation. We thank you for the book of Revelation, that you not only tell us in Genesis how it all began, but you also reveal how you will culminate human history as we know it. And so as we open your word, we ask that our hearts would be open to you, that you would be able to minister to us. I know, Father, people today here are in many different places in their journey with you. Some are the newest of Christians and some are much older. And wherever we are, may you speak today some truths that are difficult, but some that all of us can receive if we have ears to hear and eyes to see and wills to respond. Help us not to be just those who hear the word, who look in a mirror and then forget what kind of person we are, but help us to hear and to heed it, that we might be blessed in all that we do. Please help me. This morning and later today, pray that you'd fill me and empower me and anoint me that together we might lift up the Lord Jesus and we ask it in his holy name. Amen. Would you take God's word and turn to Revelation chapter 8? If you are joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter through the Revelation. Now, most Christians believe that that section of Handel's Messiah, known as the Hallelujah Chorus, may indeed be the most powerful piece of musical composition ever written in the history of man. Of course, it had its premiere in Dublin, Ireland, April the 13th, 1742. But about a year later, March the 23rd, 1743, Handel there in London performed his great sacred oratorio. Of course, the King of England, having read the words and heard greatly of the reviews, was waiting for it with anticipation, and he invited his entire court to come. And when the Hallelujah Chorus began, King George, wanting to affirm that he was just a king, but Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, stood up. And of course, in any king in that day, if the king was standing, all must stand. And so to this day, we follow that tradition, the singing of the Hallelujah Chorus. Well, today we begin a section of Scripture that Handel's Messiah originated from. We are in Revelation chapter 8, and at the conclusion of the trumpet judgments, this statement is made, the kingdoms of this world, of course this is sung in the Messiah, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Those are central to the Hallelujah Chorus. And it's really difficult to hear that chorus without your heart pounding in anticipation 
of what is yet to come. There's that point in the Hallelujah Chorus where it just stops all of a sudden. And if it's done well, the pause is so effective. And then it finishes out with the last Hallelujah. I can't help but read this section of Scripture with the trumpet judgments and realize and feel the same anticipation. In fact, many great composers of our day believe that the section that we're going to look at today in Revelation 8, where there is that pause in heaven for 30 minutes, was the inspiration for Handel's Messiah and the great pause there that, um, that, they, that, uh, that he had. Now, we're going to study the eighth chapter over the next several weeks. Today, we're just going to look at the first two verses, but they're really important because if you can understand the first couple of verses, it will make the rest of the chapter so much more meaningful. But so you have a flavor of where we're going, we're going to begin by reading the entire eighth chapter. So I hope you brought a Bible. Follow along, Revelation chapter 8, beginning now in verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hands. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were bitter, made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked and heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe! Woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now, the Bible is very clear that the next great event on God's prophetic timetable is called the rapture of the church. But after the church has been removed, a seven-year period known as the tribulation period will begin. And the tribulation period is unfolded in chapters 6 through 19. It's a graphic, gruesome picture of what is still in the future. And as you read these chapters, what you read is so terrible, so frightening, so horrible that Jesus, in describing this time frame, says, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. 
Now, Jesus is truth incarnate, and no one can ever accuse him of exaggerating. It's an incredible prophecy that he makes, that when you consider all the wars, all the holocausts, all the diseases, all the famines, all the earthquakes, all the tsunamis, all the hurricanes, all the volcanic eruptions, he said, you add it all together, and since the creation of man, there has never, ever been a time like this. Jeremiah the prophet, in describing the time of Jacob's distress or the time of Jacob's trouble, depending on your translation, says this in the 30th chapter, ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress. Jeremiah looks down the corridors of time. He prophesies of this great time in Israel's history yet to happen called the time of Jacob's distress or trouble when it will be so great that men will wrap their arms around their loins, people's faces will go pale because it will be an unparalleled time in human history. Michael, the archangel, said to Daniel, the prophet, we studied it, in the 12th chapter of Daniel, and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, speaking of the Jewish people, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. So what we're studying in chapter 8 all the way through the 19th chapter is a time of unspeakable horror. It's an unprecedented time in all of human history. Now, for the benefit of those who are new and also for the edification of the rest of us, because I want you, by the time we are done with the Revelation, be able to think your way all the way through this book, because it will change your life and you will be blessed in an extraordinary way, as the opening verses tell us for those who heed it and uh, and uh, read it. So, if you remember, the book opens in the first eight verses with an introduction of sorts. And we are given the theme right in the opening verses. The theme is that he is coming in the clouds. And then this is one of the few books. Turn there to Revelation chapter 1. We'll flip through a few chapters as we move into the 8th chapter. Uh, When you come to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19, this is one of the few books in all the Bible where we're actually given a divine outline by God. And I suppose God wanted to give us this outline so that we could not misinterpret the great revelation that he gave. If you follow the outline, the book makes a lot more sense. In 119, it says, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, that's the past, the things which are, that's the present, the things which will take place after these things. The things that are past, you might want to write over that, Revelation 1. That's what John records in the first chapter. He writes a vision that he had already seen of the glorified Christ. The things which are, write over those words, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. He writes of seven actual literal churches that are in existence in the first century. And if we read and understand that portion of the book, it will be a great blessing to us. There's a lot of heartache that can be avoided in life if we heed the teaching found in the seven churches of the Revelation. Then beginning in chapter 4 all the way through the 22nd chapter, we come into the after these things, the things that shall take place after these things. So after these things, write Revelation 4 through 22. Which things which will take place after these things or after the churches, 
those events that are in the future. So we're in the futuristic section of the book of Revelation. So go, go over a couple pages to the right to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. Just a few pages to the right, Revelation 4 and verse 1. Uh, you come to a structural marker letting you know there's a new section in the book. Notice how 4.1 begins. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a, of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Twice over in the same verse, so you cannot miss it, we are moving into the futuristic section of the book. And if you remember, this is a picture of the rapture. The door is opened. John is let in. The church has been caught up into heaven. And we will see here in verse 4 of this chapter, notice, around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, I'm not going to review it, but I will just say briefly that we saw 24 is a representative number in Scripture, and these 24 elders review for us the church captured up into heaven. They are a picture of the church that has been harpazoed, caught up, raptured, as the Latin Bible renders the text. And so the church is in heaven beginning in chapter 4, and you will not see them mentioned again until you come to the 19th chapter. First, Christ comes for his saints. At the second coming, a distinctly different event, he comes back with his saints, all right? So those are important to keep those footholds. But what's really interesting, when you read of John's vision of heaven here in the fourth chapter, it is very similar to the vision that Daniel has of heaven. It's very similar to the vision Isaiah has of heaven with one exception, in either Daniel or Isaiah do you find the 24 elders. And that should be a major clue to you as the identity of who these 24 elders are. So chapter 4 ends, if you remember, with God receiving praise from the four living creatures, the cherubim that are described in, by the prophet uh, Ezekiel, along with the 24 elders there in heaven. Chapter 5 we're in the same courtroom, but now the praise has ceased for a moment because God is about to transact some very important business. Uh, look, if you will, at chapter 5 and verse 1. I saw on the right hand of him, this is the Father sitting on the throne, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, or you could translate it as scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. The chapter opens with the Apostle John weeping because no one is able, supposedly, to open up this seven-seal scroll. And so the question is asked in verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And as we've studied, John's first century audience would have understood the significance of a seven-sealed scroll. It was in the first century what we would call a last will and testament or a title deed. And so the father has securely held in his hand the title deed to the earth. If you remember, Adam had been given dominion over the earth to rule and to reign. 
but he lost that dominion when he rebelled against God and yielded to the temptation of the evil one. And so Satan is now called with a small g, the God of this world. And so in Luke 4, Matthew 4, where the temptation of Christ is given, it's a very legitimate offer that Satan makes because Adam, in essence, had lost the farm. Bow down and worship me, and I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. And so Jesus, of course, refuses because he came to die for us. He was not going to thwart the will of God in his life. And at his redeeming sacrifice there on Golgotha, he not only redeems man, he redeems the creation. Paul in Romans 8 describes all of the creation moaning and groaning, as magnificent as it is, though the heavens are declaring the glory of God, they don't even begin to declare the glory of God the way they originally did. And so Christ takes this seven-seal scroll, and he is going to enact a series of judgments that will allow him to rule and reign as God intended. In chapters 6 through 19 are what we call the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. And so it's so intense that if you will notice chapter 6, In verse 16, the people will say, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And so this sixth chapter is a shock to the senses. In chapters 4 and 5, we've been in a place of praise and shouting. When you come into chapter 6, you are in a place of pain and suffering. In chapters 4 and 5, we're, we're experienced with the saints there, the heavenly joys. There's great scenes of joy there in the heavenly places. But when you come into chapter 6, you come into a place of judgment. Now, if you understand the structure of Revelation chapters 6 through 19, the book of Revelation will begin to make sense to you. And we've already noted that the seal judgments happen first, STB, not STS, search the scriptures, STB, right? Seal judgment, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments. The trumpet judgments can't happen until the seal judgments happen. The seal judgments happen, followed by the trumpet judgments, followed by the bold judgments. They happen consecutively in consecutive order. But what's interesting is when you come to the introduction of the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11 and verse 15, this verse out of the Messiah, um, or the Messiah quotes it, it's out of the Bible, we read, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And you would think that the book should end there and the second coming should just happen. But it is a significant statement in the midst of this parenthesis because when the seventh trumpet is sounded, seven bold judgments will follow that will bring about the second coming of Christ. And there is an intensity that begins to build through the trumpet and the bold judgments. For instance, in the sealed judgments, we saw one-fourth of the earth affected. For instance, in the fourth seal. But when we come, for instance, to the third trumpet, we see one-third of the world affected. And so there's an intensity that's growing, just as Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, like with a woman who is in labor. Now, that's the backdrop for today's message. I'm calling it, When Heaven Goes Silent. If you are taking notes, the very first thing I want you to see is the unusual experience of this silence, the unusual experience of this silence. We read now in verse 1, 
When the lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. This is such an incredible contrast uh, from what we have just heard. In chapters 4 through 7, we saw heaven filled with praise. We saw the raptured saints, the angels of heaven, the tribulation saints. Remember, there are three kinds of saints in the Bible that we've already highlighted for you. There's Old Testament saints, believers in the Old Testament. There are church saints, and there's a third category called tribulation saints. And of course, they're all in heaven. They're praising the Lord. They're giving Him honor. But then when the Lamb opens the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Maybe perhaps the longest pause of silence ever in heaven's history. It's as if heaven is holding its breath, and in awe, there's absolute silence. I remember years ago, a, tr- a, a case, a trial in our nation that had captured the country's attention for 18 months. And the verdict was going to come, and I was in a restaurant with some of our staff at the time, and there was a TV in that restaurant, and I mean the restaurant was dead silent. You could hear a pin drop, and people were holding their breath for that head juror to read the verdict. That's kind of the picture here. There was silence in heaven for half an hour. All of heaven is just holding its breath because of what is about to be announced. Now, by the way, this response of 30 minutes of silence shatters a commonly miss, uh, a common, commonly erroneous beliefs that people have that there's no time in heaven. The Bible is very clear. We've just read about half an hour or 30 minutes. If you're with us in the study of chapter six, we saw all these tribulation saints who are beheaded for acknowledging Jesus as Lord. They're in heaven and they know what's happening to people upon the earth. And so they ask a question in Revelation 6.10, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? To which God says in Revelation 6.11, for a little while longer. Or you could render it or paraphrase it, for a little time yet. Well, you can't have, uh, you can't wait if there's no such thing as time. But people sometimes have said, but doesn't the Bible say, and time shall be no more? No, it really doesn't. Now, a famous hymn says that, and it's a great hymn, uh, but there's one little, I think, point of error in his theology. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time shall be no more. And the hymn writer probably was reading the old King James, Revelation 10 and verse 6, if you're interested, where at the end of that verse, it says, there should be time no longer. But if you read it carefully in the old King James, and you read it contextually in the King James, then like the new King James and like the new American standard, it renders it, there will be delay no longer. In other words, in that context, he's talking about nothing is going to stop, nothing is going to delay the judgment of God, no amount of time, and in the next verse, he begins to enact that that judgment. So there is time in heaven. Now, Buddhists and Hindus 
believe that there's an absence of time in eternity, but the Bible is distinctly different. Uh, if you remember, when you come to the end of the book, the 22nd chapter, the tree of life that was all the way back there in the Garden of Eden, we will see it in the New Jerusalem. We will eat from it. And of course, uh, the scripture says there that every month there is fruit that the tree of life produces. So beyond minutes, 30 minutes, beyond the keeping of days and weeks, there's also months in heaven. Now, sometimes people will say, but doesn't the Bible say that there will be no moon or sun in heaven, and therefore without a sun or a moon, how can you have months? Well, it doesn't actually say that. It says that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, but it also says there's a place that we call the New Jerusalem. If you die this morning and you go to heaven, you will go to a place, and I gave you a number of names by which it is called, the Father's house, heaven, the new Jerusalem. You will go to a place where Revelation 21, 23 says, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. This speaks of the Father's house, of the new Jerusalem, that is distinct from the coming new heaven and the new earth that God is going to create. In the new Jerusalem, there is no need for the sun to shine because the glory of Jesus shines it. We don't need the outside light to illumine this auditorium. I was in here late last night and I came in and it was pitch black. I couldn't see a thing. Um, but if I turn on the lights, I would be able to see everything. Well, in heaven, there will be no need for any kind of natural light or even artificial light because the glory of the Lamb will light it. But remember, the new Jerusalem is just the city, the capital city, as we will study at the end of the book, of a new earth. Now, there are some people who are amillennialists and they describe heaven and they've written some books on heaven and they think God's just going to kind of fix up the current earth. Well, he will during the millennial reign, but since they deny the millennial reign of Christ, that he will literally rule, they think we're just going to have someday a fixed up earth that we'll live on. Listen, God is going to take the new Jerusalem, he will take the current heavens and earth, he will destroy them with fire, and the new Jerusalem will come literally physically and sit on a new earth. And when you study the new earth, you discover that there are seasons and harvests, which have, uh, I assume will require a sun and so forth. So um, I say all that to say that there's time in heaven. I mean, we've already seen music in heaven, right? Does not music, Matt, require tempo. You know, I had five years of piano. Oh my, me and my brother, we drove dear Mr. Roland nuts. He came out one night and was all upset when my brother said, you broke my divan. I went home and I said, mom, what's a divan? Mr. Roland said, Kevin broke it. <laughs> I said, well, that dear man, he used to take this little ticker, this metro, metronome, and he'd click it and he'd go back and forth and back and forth. And I said, Mr. Roland, could you turn that thing off? It throws me off. It really messes me up. It wasn't supposed to. It was supposed to help me. But listen, in heaven, there is time. And there's time now. And by the way, if you've not received Jesus as your Savior, the time someday will run out either by death or by rapture. And then your time will turn into an eternity of time forever and ever and ever in a place of judgment that God does not wish you to go. Again, verse 1, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, 
There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, this would be a good time to note that since there is about a half an hour of silence in heaven, by implication, that tells us we don't sing constantly in heaven. We're going to discover as we work through Revelation that there's many things that we are going to do in heaven. Among things, we will work. Our God is a working God. Every once in a while, you'll hear some uninformed Christians say that work was a result of the fall. It was a curse. No, it was not. God was working before the fall. Adam was working before the fall. Work was not a part of the curse. And you who are made in the image and likeness of God will work in heaven. What was a part of the curse was the nature of work change. Now it comes by the sweat of our brow. So we're told here, in essence, there's going to be 30 minutes of silence. And so all of heaven is pondering. They're listening. They're waiting with bated breath. What a contrast to what we've seen. We've already seen in the fourth chapter all this noise, the the sound of thunder. We, we saw the, the saints before God's throne, like the four living creatures saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. In chapter 5, we saw that amazing song that was being sung by the inhabitants of heaven. In chapter 6, we heard the saints who had been persecuted and beheaded, asking and crying out, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging the earth? And in chapter 7, we saw another great praise service of people in heaven singing salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So this is an unusual experience of silence. Now, beyond the unusual experience of this silence, now John notes for us the cause underlying this silence, the cause that is underlying this silence. If you have eyes to see the cause, it's also found here in verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. You see, by the time the singing and praise of the elders and the four living creatures and the tribulation saints and the angels suddenly stop, there's a reason it stops. Jesus breaks the seventh seal. Now, there's a cause and an effect in this verse. When one thing happens, something else happens. So when the lamb breaks the seventh seal, there is silence, and only then is there silence in heaven for 30 minutes. Now, remember, the seal judgments are different from the trumpet judgments. If you were with us in chapter 6, we saw that it's not a sealed scroll like you might think, that there is an outer seal and it's broken and it's rolled a little bit, and you see what's in the first seal judgment. Then a second seal is broken, and you see what's revealed in the second seal. And the third seal is broken, and you see what's revealed in the third seal. All the way through that, but when the seventh seal is broken, you're able to visualize all that is about to take place. Let me give you a slide that might help us to see the relationship between the seal trumpet and bold judgments. Again, there are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Sometimes you will hear of the heptatic structure of the book of Revelation. A heptat is a seven. That's just a fancy theological word that there's three series of seven. And so there are seven seals, and in the seventh seal is found seven trumpets. And so when the seventh seal is broken, the seven trumpets begin to unfold. And when the seventh trumpet is sounded, 
the six bold judgments begin to unfold. Let me tighten the focus a little bit more. Here's a, a picture of the seven-sealed scroll that we've studied. The first four seals, if you remember, picture the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first seal was the white horse, representing temporary peace, a false messiah who comes. The second seal was the red horse, representing war and bloodshed. The third seal, if you remember, represented the black horse, picturing global famine. The fourth seal was a picture of the ashen or the pale horse or the pale green horse, depending on your rendering of the Greek, and it represents pestilence and death. And then we saw that those four horsemen were followed by the fifth seal, which brings a huge number of martyred saints. We're calling them tribulation saints who are martyred for their faith. Then the sixth seal comes, and there are cosmic changes that take place in the universe, and then there's a parenthesis. And we're going to see with each of these series of threes, there's six seal judgments, a parenthesis, and the parenthesis is going to look back and show you what was else was going on on the earth during the time of those six seals, and then the seventh seal will be broken. It will open up seven trumpets. You will see the first six trumpets, then there'll be another parenthesis, and it will show you what was going on during the time of the trumpet judgments. Then the seventh trumpet is sounded, six bowls of wrath, and there'll be another parenthesis, and then the final bowl of wrath. So that structure is very important to understanding the book of Revelation. So here's a picture here, of course, uh, the trumpet judgments, and as you read chapters eight and nine, you once again see that there's an explicit cause-effect relationship between the seventh and the seven trumpets that follow. But unlike the seals, where you can just see one seal at a time, as we'll see this morning, when the seventh seal is broken, you can see all seven trumpets, and in the seventh trumpet are all the bold judgments, so you can see all the way to the end. Now wonder in 1511, does heaven shout, now the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. There's coming a day, we pray it in the model or the Lord's prayer, Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a kingdom prayer. We are praying that a day is going to come when God's will will be done on the earth, and that will happen when Messiah comes a second time. Do you remember, we just studied it over Christmas when the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, look, you're going to have a baby but without a human father, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow your womb, and he is going to give you the Son of God. You're going to carry in your womb the Son of God. And he says in Luke one thirty-two, he, the Son of the Most High, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. When Jesus came the first time, he never received the throne of his father, David. Was Gabriel just spouting words? Absolutely not. Because in Gabriel's announcement, he is giving a picture much like Isaiah, uh, the ninth chapter, of both comings of Christ. Isaiah said there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold its justice and righteousness. And so we saw in Isaiah, both comings of Christ are pictured. A baby is going to be born and the baby's name is mighty God. And there's coming a day when the governments of this world will rest on his shoulders. Did that happen at his first coming? Absolutely not. Did, G did Jesus literally sit on the throne of David? Not yet. 
but he is going to. We are going to see that fulfilled when we come to the 20th chapter. And so when they see the seventh seal broken and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls that are all pictured together, they just hold their breath. Because what is about to happen is going to culminate in the kingdom of the Messiah. Verse 2, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God and, circle that word, and seven trumpets were given to them. See, again, this is very different. You don't see them one at a time. He sees both the seven angels who stand before God along with the seven trumpets that are given to them. So they all appear at once, so to speak. And again, in the seventh trumpet is contained the seven bowls of wrath. And it causes them when they see this, as bad as what we've studied so far in the seal judgments, it doesn't even begin to compare to what we're going to see. There's a growing intensity like a woman who's in labor. And it just brings shock. I remember sitting in our living room with my wife as we were watching the replay of the Twin Towers coming down, and we just sat there in silence. All of heaven is just in silence, much like Habakkuk chapter 2. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. And they interviewed all these people and people using the Lord's name in vain and oh my, oh my, oh my, and, you know, swearing and cursing. And you heard the recordings of that jet that was flying down in Pennsylvania. And some people were saying the Lord's prayer and other people were cursing God. And you will see the same reaction at this time. But I promise you in heaven, no one will be using the Lord's name in vain. There's absolute silence. Their breath is held as they wait. And as we move forward from chapter 8, we will learn that at this point of the tribulation, most of earth's inhabitants will not respond to the gospel. Most of the conversions will happen in the first half of the tribulation. But in the second half of the tribulation that begins with the trumpet and bowl judgments, there'll be conversions, there'll be a preaching of the gospel, but far less. People by this time have either responded in faith or they've grown bitter to the Lord. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, is there an event that triggers these trumpet and bowl judgments that God says are going to happen? And the answer is absolutely yes. Hold your finger here and turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. If you're new to the Bible, go to Matthew the 24th chapter, Matthew 24, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a very, very important place. The Mount of Olives was the place that Ezekiel saw the Shekinah glory of God leave and exit up into heaven. The Mount of Olives was the place that Jesus ascended to heaven from. The Mount of Olives is the place that Jesus is literally, physically, actually, Zechariah 14 says, going to come, Messiah will come back and he will plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. So it's a great place. It's kind of ground zero for both Jews and for uh, Christians. People want to be buried on the Mount of Olives if they can afford it. Why do Jews want to be buried on the Mount of Olives? because they know that's where the Messiah is coming back to, and they want to see it happen. In either case, 
Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, and he's telling them about the destruction of the temple, where one stone will not stay upon another. But he also goes on to tell them about the events that will lead up to his second coming. So he gives a short-range prophecy, because he fills three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And for a true prophet of God to be a prophet, you not only had to tell long-range prophecies, but short-range. And Jesus did both, that some of that were fulfilled during his life, and some shortly after. And so in 70 AD, just like he said, Titus Vespucian came in, wipes out the temple. Not one stone is left standing upon another. When you go to Israel today and you stand at the Western Wall, you are not standing at a temple wall. You're standing at the Temple Mount. The temple was on top of that platform. That was just the surrounding wall that was built by Herod the Great on which the temple would ultimately, uh, his rebuilt temple was set. Now, Follow with me. He's on the Temple Mount, and, uh, and, and I want you to follow this carefully because here's why. Do you remember how the book of Revelation began? It began with a, an incredible promise. Let me read it to you. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the word of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. Read, hear, and heed. Now, you had to have someone read it because most people didn't own their own copy of Scripture. So God gave a special blessing to the lector, and you get your own special blessing because you've got your own copy of Scripture. But not only those who read it, but who heard it. And the word heard is without understanding. There's a presupposition in the book of Revelation that you can understand it. Do you know that the book of Revelation is one of the least preached books in all of the Bible? People think, well, I just can't get it. You can get it. God says you can get it so much that you can hear with understanding such that you can heed it, that you can obey it. And God says there's a special blessing that comes with it. Now, all the way through Scripture, we're encouraged to read Scripture and we're given all kinds of promises of how we will be edified. But there's no book in all of the Bible that specifically says, read me. I am so special that if you will read me, you will receive a special blessing. Now understand, before we crack the fine print here of Matthew 24, the order of events. Here's a, here's a chart. Again, uh, the next event is the rapture. It begins the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. If you are not here for the preaching of the book of Daniel, you might want to go and listen at least to the last four sermons in Daniel 9, where I explain the 70th week prophecy. It's important. It describes a week not of days, but the Jews not only had a week of days, but a week of years. It describes a time frame known as seven years. We call it in the New Testament the tribulation period. And Daniel divides it into two halves, as does the Lord Jesus, as does the Apostle John. So you'll read of three and a half years, or a time, times, and a half of times, or 42 months, or 1260 days. And there's an event right in the middle of the 70th week. See that? A-O-D, it stands for the abomination of desolation that divides the week in half. When we're caught up into heaven, the next judgment is called the Bema Seat Judgment, the Bema Seat. It is a judgment not of unbelievers, but of Christians. You will stand before Jesus and give an account, not to see if you get to heaven, but to see how you will experience eternity, how God will bless you in heaven, so to speak. Not Every Christian, as we studied a little bit on Wednesday night, 
will experience heaven in the same way. It's a marvelous place for anyone who goes, just as hell is a horrible place for anyone who goes. But hell is not the same for everyone. There's a great white throne judgment where Jesus will deal out retribution according to your works. And God will reward his people. This is not a judgment of sin, but a judgment of service according to your deeds. And some believers are more faithful with what God has given them than others. And Jesus will take that into account. The next great event is the rapture. The Bema seat will happen. And then after we are rewarded, we will sit down for the marriage supper of the Lamb. First, he comes for his saints. That's in the catching up of the church. At the second coming, we will come, he will come back with his saints and he, we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years upon the earth. All right. Now, with that in mind, let's look here at Matthew 24. In this next slide, if you will bring it up, you will see that there are direct parallels between the Olivet Discourse, this sermon given on the Mount of Olives, in Matthew 24 with Revelation chapter 6 and 7. There's a parallel between those two events. So let's see if we can follow that. And you might want to write out in the margin of your Bible a number of various uh, verses um, over each. Look at verse 24 and verse 5. Matthew 24, verse 5. Here Jesus mentions the birth pangs. He says, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. And so as this chart uh, exemplifies, this is a picture of the first seal. So you might want to write out in the margin next to this verse, Revelation 6, 1 and 2. The first seal is broken. The rider and the white horse comes because at the start of the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, with the church gone, there's going to be all kinds of false messiahs. But the epitome of all the false messiahs will be the coming Antichrist, whom John is going to reveal to us when we come to the 13th chapter. So the first horseman, a white horse, is seen. He's the Antichrist. Look at verse 6. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Right next to verse 6, write Revelation 6, 3 and 4. Next to verse 6, write Revelation 6, verses 3 and 4. This is the second seal. This is the rider on the red horse, which will bring unparalleled wars across the globe, so much so that the rumor on everyone's lips is yet talk of another war. Then the Lord moves to the third seal in Matthew 24 and verse 7 when he describes the horrors of famine. And in various places there will be famine. Right out next to that verse, Revelation 6, verses 5 and 6. Revelation 6, 5 and 6. That's the black horse of famine and the hunger that he brings. Then comes the fourth horseman of the apocalypse who comes on an ashen or a pale horse which represents worldwide pestilence and death. And the fourth seal corresponds to Christ's earlier promise recorded both here and in Luke's gospel, referring to a time of death that will come by earthquakes, followed by pestilence and disease. And so let me read it to you. And in various places, there will be earthquakes. That's verse 7, verse 8. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Right out next to the end of verse 7 and 8, Revelation 6, 7 and 8. Now, the birth pangs are not here, and so you will hear Christians say, well, the number of earthquakes, they're increasing, and the number of famines, they're growing, and, and are, is there any significance to that? And they'll call those the birth pangs. Those aren't the birth pangs. 
Now, I think there's significance to them and that it alerts us to the fact that uh, there's a pregnancy that's real. And maybe we're getting to the end of the term, but the birth pangs don't begin, according to Jesus, until the church is removed. They happen during the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. And so here in the fifth seal, Matthew 24, verses 9 and 10, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. That, by the way, is exactly what we read in Revelation chapter 6. And then if you look at verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So next to verses 9 and 10, write Revelation 6, 9 through 11. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. The persecution that Jesus speaks of here in the first half of the tribulation, and he's going to divide it into two halves. We're going to see in a moment. There's an event that takes place that divides the two halves. The persecution that he describes is identical to what we saw with the fifth seal in Revelation chapter 6. Untold of persecution. But if you read the sixth chapter as we studied it, we saw that these tribulation saints maintained their testimony. That is, they didn't renounce Jesus, and it cost most of them their heads. They're beheaded. And we are seeing a beheading taking place in our day by the Muslims against Christians. That's going to be widespread across the planet. People thought that that was done and over and archaic and gone with the French Revolution, but it's back and the Muslims are doing it, and you're going to see it across the planet of on everyone who confesses Jesus is Lord and refuses to give allegiance to the Antichrist. But their testimony will be maintained, and so Jesus said, the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. You're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, you will persevere. That is a sign that your conversion is genuine. You will never, ever renounce Christ. Then in the sixth seal, Jesus doesn't directly mention it here in this part of the Olivet Discourse. It talks about the sun being darkened and the moon becoming like blood and the stars falling to the earth. And I think there's a reason he doesn't mention it, though he does mention it in a general way in Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse, and that he says in this section, there will be terrors and great signs in the heavens. But I think he wants to distinguish what is happening in the heavenly realm in terms of the moon and the sun and the stars which will happen again during the trumpet judgments from the final expression of the sun going super dark, the stars falling from heaven, the moon turning blood that happens just before his second coming. All right, stay with me now, Matthew 24 and verse 14. Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Right next to verse 14, Revelation chapter 7. Just put next to verse 14, Revelation 7. Sometimes we hear of Christians saying that Jesus cannot come back until the gospel is taken to the entire world. That's not true for the rapture. Prophetically, nothing ever has needed to take place 
for Jesus to come back. He could have come back a week after Pentecost if he wanted. All kinds of prophecy needs to unfold for the second coming to take place. It is significant that we're bringing the gospel and putting in uh, people's native tongues, the Bible, to more and more places. But really, in the fullest sense, this prophecy will be fulfilled during the tribulation period through Revelation 7's picture of 144,000 Jewish men preaching the gospel to people across the planet and their converts in turn and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are saved. Now, the next thing on your chart, which is new, is here you see the A of D, that's the abomination of desolation, moving the tribulation period from tribulation to great tribulation. So here's a picture of it. The first half is called tribulation. The second half is called great tribulation. And what moves us from tribulation to great tribulation, though sometimes we call the whole thing the great tribulation period. Well, if you want to do that, then call the second half the greater, greater tribulation period, all right? But what happens in the middle? The abomination of desolation here in verse 15, right next to Matthew 24, 15, just write Revelation 8, because this is the timing of the trumpet judgments and follow the trumpet and bold judgments happen in the second half of the tribulation. And there's an event that Matthew, that Daniel says is right in the middle of the 70th week, right in the middle of this seven year period that Jesus quotes Daniel as having said that will trigger these events to come. Let me read it to you. Verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Right in the middle, this event takes place. So you ask, is there an event that triggers the 30 minutes of silence in heaven? Yes, the abomination of desolation. And it's at that point that the seventh seal is broken, the seven trumpets and the seven bold judgments are revealed, and it just takes people's breath away. There's silence. There's awe in heaven over what is about to take place, for then there will be great tribulation since has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. That's Revelation 8 through 18. And of course, if you want to write another verse next to verse 30, the second coming of Christ, you can write Revelation 19, and that will be the final darkening of the sun and the moon and so forth, all right? So this is an amazing change that is happening here. We've studied in in, in Revelation uh, 7, all of heaven singing this great chorus of praise, and we've seen the people in chapter 4 saying, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and we've heard this strong angel's voice, and we've heard the people crying out, how long, O Lord? But now there's dead silence. That's incredible. That's the first point, the unusual experience of silence. Secondly, we've underscored the, the second point, the cause of this underlying silence. The third point, the tribulation during this silence, the tribulation during this silence. Look at verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets 
were given to them. Now, if you took my course on angels, we divided into two halves, angels for us, dealing with holy angels, and angels against us, dealing with fallen angels. But in both cases, we saw that angels are ranked and organized on both sides, and we've already seen that. We've seen, for instance, the four living creatures. They're a high order of angelic beings that the prophet Ezekiel calls cherubim. We're going to see here a special group of these seven angels who who stand before God. And notice it says, and I saw these seven angels. He didn't say I saw seven angels. I saw these seven angels. And when God uses the article in Greek, it's never wasted. It's for a purpose. Now, I know some languages like the Slavic languages don't have the article. But it's there in Greek and it's there in English. It's what we teach our children. It's the pointing word. The word the is the pointing word. Give me a pen. You can give me any pen you want. Give me the pen. You know, I have a specific pen in my mind. These are these seven angels and they are standing and it is a Greek participle. You say, oh, that blesses me. It, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a verbal of sorts. That means they've been standing there for a long, 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 long time. Same kind of word that's used to describe Gabriel when he comes to Mary and he says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. So here are these seven angels who have been standing in the presence of God. Some think they're archangels and some will preach this passage, you know, they'll talk about the seven archangels. Well, there's actually in the Bible only one that is called an archangel, but there could be more. Who is he? Michael. Michael the archangel. Maybe Gabriel's an archangel. In Jewish theology, uh, tradition says, for what it's worth, but many of the Jewish traditions came into the scriptures because God put his stamp of approval on them. They believe there are seven archangels. And if you're a Roman Catholic or from the uh, Greek Orthodox faith or Romanian Orthodox or one of those branches... They actually have the seven archangels named, including Michael and Gabriel. I don't know if they're archangels, but I do know they are a high order of angels who are ready to blow their trumpets. Now, remember in Scripture, we've seen some trumpets up here. Some of these guys are just, and gals are unbelievable. And when they blow these horns on Sunday morning, and we typically think of trumpets in terms of music. But in the Bible, while there was a musical expression to trumpets, trumpets were generally sounded in order to announce that God was getting ready to do something or asking his people to do something. And so on this next chart, as you can see, there were trumpets that were sounded that would call people to work or to end their work, like in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. If you go to Numbers, chapter 10, there are trumpets that would call people to worship. If you happen to be in Jerusalem on a Friday evening when sunset officially is declared, you will hear all across the city shofars being blown. They are calling the people to worship that the Sabbath has begun. In Ezekiel chapter 33, there's a trumpet of warning. Remember the man on the watch there on the wall, and he failed to warn the people by sounding the trumpet. And then God had trumpets that would call people to war or out of war. It calls them to war, like in Judges 3, or calls them out of war, like in 2 Samuel chapter 2. Well, as Christians, we are waiting for a very special trumpet that is associated with the rapture. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 
chapter 4. It's called the trumpet of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, another great raptured passage, it's called the last trumpet. And those are two trumpet passages for the church. And like the Jews in the Apostle Paul's day, the Romans also referred to a first trumpet and a last trumpet. Josephus tells us that in his work called The War of the Jews. And he distinguished the two, and he said the last trumpet had a different sound, a deeper sound, and it would call the people from war. We are waiting for the last trumpet to be sounded. Now, this is important. We'll study it in further detail later on. There's another trumpet for the second coming. And it's called a great trumpet. And some take the last trumpet of 1 Corinthians 15 and they mix it with the great trumpet for the second coming and they conclude, therefore, that the Christians will be here for the seven-year period known as the great tribulation period. But they are mixing up trumpets. Not to mention the trumpet called the great trumpet is not the last trumpet that sounded in Scripture. Because all the way through the millennial reign of Messiah, there will be trumpets that are sounded. But understand how the Corinthians would have understood the last trumpet. He's not writing there to Jews. He's writing primarily to Greeks, to Gentiles. And in their mentality, the trumpets largely had application as it related to war. And so, for instance, he has just stated in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 8, for, the bu- for if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? Now, he's making an analogy but he uses an illustration of their day concerning the gift of tongues. If someone speaks in a tongue and no one can interpret it, it's a bunch of gibberish. It helps no one. It edifies zero. Likewise, he said, if someone blows a trumpet, but it's not sounding the right note, calling you to the right thing, it doesn't mean anything. And so he is recognizing, without having to explain it, how Greeks and Gentiles thought that there were trumpets that were calling you to war, and there were trumpets, the last trumpet, that called you from the war. And that's the trumpet we are waiting for. We are in a war. We are in a spiritual battle. But one of these days, God is going to sound the last trumpet, and he's going to catch up the church. The trumpet was also used by Romans to call the first guard uh, to come and watch and stand at the wall. And then another trumpet, the last trumpet, was sounded to call another guard to take his place. And so we are in that time of watching. Jesus said, watch out and beware of the leaven, of the teaching of the Pharisees. He said, keep watching and pray that you might not enter into temptation. He said in Luke's gospel, watch out that the light is in you, that darkness will not overtake you. John wrote, watch yourselves that you may not lose what you have accomplished. So right now we are watching, but when the last trumpet of God is sounded, praise the Lord, we will no longer watch. We'll be carried to heaven and we will be taken out of this battleground called planet earth. So God is involved in the affairs of men and nations, and very often in both Jewish and Greek culture, trumpets highlighted something that God was about to do. And so these seven angels who stand before God are given seven trumpets, and they are about ready to blow them. But you'll have to come back next week to find out what they're going to sound. All right. Now, so how are we going to apply this? You know, this is interesting, you say, and I took a lot of time. This is foundational to where we're going. And if you don't have a handle on this, it's going to be difficult to understand then chapters 8 and 9. 
So if you didn't get it all, go back and listen again at searchthescriptures.org or whatever you need to do. But how are we going to apply this? This is not just information for information's sake. God says if you will read it, hear it with understanding, and then apply it, you will be blessed. So let me make three applications via questions. Number one, how do you view the tribulation judgments? How do you view the tribulation judgments? A series of 21 judgments, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. How do you look at them? I want you to know that you should see them both as an expression of God's righteousness, but also as an expression of God's mercy. Remember, one of the functions of the tribulation period is to bring people to real faith in Jesus. So we saw in the first six seal judgments, 144,000 people preaching across the planet and people compared to the sands of the seashore that no one can count are saved during this time. And that's one thing that natural disasters do sometimes, don't they? You know, I don't know how some of the people in California responded last week, but those mudslides came down with all those rocks. And I imagine some may have cursed God and swore, and maybe others called upon Him for salvation. God often uses heartache. There are no unbelievers, so to speak, in a foxhole, right? God often uses heartache to get people's attention. And one of the functions of the tribulation is not just to bring the Jews to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, but also Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And God will use it in a good way. It will be kind of a last wake-up call. People are going to be saying, what's happening? Where is the world going? People were in total panic yesterday in Hawaii, weren't they? Total panic. What's happening? What are we going to do? All these Christians, they're gone. And some will believe and come to genuine faith. You know, I was on a flight once from North Carolina to go to speak in Dallas, and and we'd been up in the air a short time, and the pilot came on. He said, we need to make an emergency landing in Greensboro, North Carolina. It was a Piedmont flight. They're now USA, our US Air. Um, and I'm telling you, people started pulling out those cards and reading them. Now, I didn't give any attention to that dear lady up there in the front when she gave us instructions at the beginning. Not many people were listening. But I'm telling you, when the pilot said, we need to make an emergency landing, the cards came out. People were resting on every word that she said. That's one of the functions of the tribulation period. God will have their attention. Second question by way of application. Are you waiting for the tribulation period to get saved? Are you waiting for the time of this tribulation to get saved? You know, some people realize, they, they think, well, I've got some oats to, to sow and some fun to have. And if this happens like you say it will, Brother Brogy, then I'll get my heart right and I'll give my life to Jesus. That's a very foolish way to think for four reasons. Number one, it's entirely possible that you could die before this day is over. I was on the 13th floor of the University of North Carolina in a dorm room. Tom Rotolo, who's a pastor, Claude, who worked for the President of the United States as his right-hand man, and a third guy were all in the room. I shared the gospel, and two of those guys, Claude and Tom, received Christ. And this last roommate did not. And a few days later, they call me, and they say, Carl, our roommate, he's dead. He's dead. I mean, just 18, 19 years old. 
None of us have the promise that we will be alive. We are one breath away from eternity. And listen, it is very foolish to play Russian roulette with your soul to think that you have all the time in the world because you may die. And number two, the Spirit of God won't always strive with you. There will come a time when because you've put him off and put him off and put him off, he'll remove the interest that you have. Number three, we studied it already. Millions and millions of people, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, will believe the lie. See, people who prior to the rapture of the church heard the gospel in clarity and in power will not believe during the tribulation. They won't say, well, my brother was right. He spoke to me about this rapture. Now he's gone. I guess I'll give my heart to Jesus. Oh, no, Paul said, and with all the deception of wickedness, for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, and for this reason, because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved, God will send upon them a strong delusion, literally the lie, it's articular. We're going to study that lie. He'll send upon them the strong delusion, the lie, that they might believe the lie, that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Look, there's not one shred of evidence that if you've heard the gospel prior to the rapture, that you will give your life to Jesus after the rapture. Not to mention, who would want to become a believer during the tribulation anyway? I mean, it's a horrible time to live upon the earth. Who'd want to give their life to Jesus then? I mean, it would be better to do that than to spend an eternity with them, but I don't want to be here for that time. And fourth... Jesus wants you to become a Christian today because he has a plan for your life. The thief, the evil one, comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Christianity is not just saying, get right with God because you might die. That's only half the message. But get right with God so that you can live. And I mean really, really live. There's no greater joy than knowing the Lord Jesus. Third and finally, what trumpet will you hear when it is sounded? What trumpet are you going to hear? God is setting the stage for the second coming. No prophecy since the church was born ever has needed to be fulfilled for the last trumpet the trumpet of the Lord to sound to come and capture his church. But what is amazing is how God in our lifetime is fulfilling prophecy, reminding us that the rapture is that much closer. So if it happens soon, there'll be one of two trumpets. You will either hear the trump of God that will carry you to heaven, or you will hear these trumpets that we're going to study in the eighth chapter that will bring unparalleled wrath upon the world that brought total silence to the residents of heaven. So we have to choose. There's no neutral ground. Holy Father, thank you today for what you've given us here in your word. Thank you that you promised us that if we would read it and hear it with understanding and you told us that we're to study and show ourselves approved. We're not to be lazy. We're to spend our time studying the Scriptures, among other things. And then if we would obey it and apply it, that you would, in a unique and special way, bless us. So I thank you for the blessing of the revelation.
And I pray today for someone who knows you as Lord, who's unashamed to confess you, that together we might be faithful in warning people of the wrath that is going to come. Help us to see people the way you see them. Help us to be like the Lord Jesus who came to seek and to save that which is lost. You promised that if we would follow you, that you would make us fishers of men. And Father, for those in the sound of my voice who are unsure that heaven is really their home because they've never rested, believed on, trusted, put their full confidence in the gift of God, which is eternal life through Christ. They've never trusted his death and resurrection. Help them today to come to Jesus, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, we recognize this is absolute folly and poppycock or it's absolute truth. These things are either a fantasy or they will happen just as you said. Thank you that through a new birth we have eyes to see. Give us wills to respond. We ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen.